Hi, everybody. I'm Rusty Hodge from Selma FM, where us mid-sized internet radio service has been around for about 12 years here in San Francisco, and the panel today is streaming lots and lots of music. This is a more technical panel. We're going to talk about like what kind of infrastructure you need, what kind of decisions you should make if you're starting a service that's going to be streaming. We're going to tell you about maybe some mistakes we made early on and what works well from us, and uh, we've got a great team assembled here. Oh, hi, Brewster. So let's see. We're going to start with uh, Alex, and give me like a... One or two minute introduction. You start with who? What did you say, Allison? I Alex? said Alex. I meant to say Michael. Yes, oh. Alex is after you. That's fine, Rusty. Call me something else to be fair. <laughs> so I'm Michael Surter with Vivo. I head product and tech for the company. We're headquartered in New York. We have offices in New York, San Francisco, and LA, and other parts of the world as well. We do like four billion video views a month, and uh, we're, we're b- very important. I think partnership with YouTube. We have a set of owned and operated properties as well. We have iOS, Android, Web, uh, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, Windows Phone, Windows Desktop as well, BlackBerry. Lots, lots of platforms, and we keep growing. We're in 13 countries. We just launched in Germany last night. So, yes, there's a lot of streaming. Oh, thank you. And to clarify, Dankeschön. Vivo, to clarify, Vivo is streaming music videos, yeah. and uh, most of the other folks here are doing just music streaming. Hi, uh, my name is Alex Lee. I'm the CTO of Smeal. Smeal is building the largest social music platform to allow everyone to create music through mobile devices. No equipment, prior training, or any uh, physical presence required. So, so far we built about a dozen apps. Some of them are very successful on iOS and Android devices, including Magic Piano, Sing Karaoke. Right now, most of our streaming is about user-generated content. So every day, we're getting about half a terabyte of user-created performance on our servers. Thank you. Chris? My name is Chris Martin. I'm the VP of Engineering at Pandora. We're available in the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand, three countries. I've been at Pandora about nine years. Started when the business was focused around kiosks and the record store kiosk based on the genome. And we've since built this, the radio product. We run over 1,000 CE devices and in about 70 car models this year, going into next year. We stream quite a bit of music across a varied set of networks and devices. Brewster? Brewster Kale, founder and, and run the Internet Archive. We're small by comparison to these awesomely huge services. We put out about um, 50 million concerts a month on the order uh, or albums and and the like and it's basically user uploaded community based uh non-profit non-commercial distribution of materials and we're interested in trying to figure out how to get to all of the unlicensed stuff the stuff that basically you guys can't get to but we'd like to really fill out the rest if we can figure out how to get the broader base you, you'll take care of the the lady gagas and we'll take care of the lots and lots and lots of others that have got really great things to uh to play you're home to a lot of what in the electronic world they call net labels. Yes. That I just started discovering this, I don't know, maybe six or six years ago or so, I think. And it's like all these, hey, we've got a new label. Check our, our label stuff. And it's like, oh, they've got a great website. It looks really cool. And you click through, and then it goes to the Internet Archive. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. So their, their cost of distribution is almost nothing because the archive is providing. How did, how did that happen? How did that come about? That's a particular fellow, Simon Carlos, that uh, it sort of came after, there was Ayuma yeah. and there was mp3.com. So Ayuma was a curated collection, so we have all of that online. And mp3.com was kind of a free-for-all, and there was a quality problem. So the net labels came out of the, sort of the decline of the real labels. And so the people that were doing small labels, local labels, they couldn't make it go, but they still wanted to put stuff up. Right. But they couldn't afford the bandwidth. So we, we said, let's figure out if we can do that. So we have, I don't know hundreds and hundreds, I don't know, 600,000, 1,200 labels, and they do a curation process that really helps basically uh, get, it, uh, get it down to good, good yeah. stuff. It, it solves the mp3.com problem. Yeah, the, the net labels are great. There's a lot of them that we play a lot of their stuff, and you know that if, you know that they basically have vetted all this content ahead of time to, you know, they're, they're acting as a, uh, what do we want to call it, a, um, um, not a collaborative filter, curator. but a curator, yeah. And they're, they're folks who probably would have wanted to start real record labels in the past. And, they're just like, and a lot of them did, and they just went out of business. Right. And this was sort of the way they went out of business when they still, you know, some people are just in it for the money, and some people are in it for the music. These guys are in it for the music. Yeah. 
And quite often the music you'll find is just really amazing, and I'm kind of shocked that they're not making a lot of money at this, sadly. Let's see. Let's, let's, let's ask Alex. So one of the things you're telling me about is your karaoke app is real popular. So how does that work, and then how, what are like the technical requirements of that? How does that So like, we'll just explain it to me. Okay. So the karaoke app he talks about is a sing karaoke. Uh, right now we have about 12 million users downloaded it and across the world. And basically it enables you to start singing with your friend. So you can start a duet or group performance request and have a lot of people to follow, love, and comment. Essentially, it's a kind of like a social network we build ourselves. So the challenge of that is one is our network is very different than Facebook or Twitter. When you see a piece of content, they don't allow you to change it. But uh, our network, everyone is allowed to come in and join a performance. Basically, you are collaboratively creating a new music, a new piece of content. So in order to, to build that network, we pretty much build a, a platform called Simulation, start from scratch, and also handled a lot of audio challenges on the mobile devices. For example, on iOS and Android, it's very different for you to do that. And also we build a back-end infrastructure to support the streaming and upload the content. So you have a lot of content being uploaded, and then you're streaming that content back out. What, are the, what kind of ratios are we talking about? Like, is it 10 times as much stuff goes out as comes in? Or? Yeah, roughly is that range. Every day we got a half a terabyte up, uploaded, mm-hmm. but we're streaming out maybe another like um, 10 or 20 terabytes. Interesting, interesting. Uh, Michael, you want to talk about Vivo and how much data you are moving right now? Oh, man. I'm tired just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> But I'm smiling because the card says to smile, laugh, and have fun. <laughs> and I love the fact that we have Shure SM58 mics because that's a real music. Yeah, the real uh, rock and roll microphone. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, so in terms of like, like bandwidth, we're like in the tens you know, of petabytes per month. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's up there. We're not allowed to say exactly how much, right. but imagine that. And that's us. Oh, um, or magnitude is good. Um, yeah. So you use a, you were telling me earlier, you use, a, you use not a CDN, but a mul- multiple, I believe, CDNs? Uh, you're, we, you're, you're not setting up your own servers, connecting, you're using a provider. Right, we're, we're using three CDNs, actually. And just, just so you have the sense, uh, when Vivo first started, it started as a company that would provide videos from the catalogs of Universal and Sony to YouTube to play on YouTube. So people were watching millions of videos on YouTube. Um, this partnership came, to, came together. And so what the company decided to do was build a website that seemed and acted like YouTube.com. So there was this Vivo website that was not much different, and that was okay, and we had it, and it was cool. And so whenever we sold something to a brand, we could, we could do a little extra on our own site that we couldn't do on YouTube. So we do that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, let's stop trying to be just like YouTube. Let's try and become like Vivo. Let's define something brand new, and let's differentiate from YouTube. So then it became, let's build out an owned and operated properties strategy. So then it's like, okay, well, what do we need to do to do that? And at the time we had, I think, and it, I wasn't even there yet, we had like two .NET engineers building website off of .NET. And, and so um, now we have like 40 people working on this stuff. And, and, and essentially we have, we have multiple CDNs. We have three CDNs at the time. We only had the one. Now we have three. And we found that by having one, there, was a lot, there wasn't a lot of operational leverage, right? We, we, had, we were beholden to that one provider. We were beholden to their, basically their player plugin. They would try and keep us you know, to one set of technology. Going to multiple CDNs allowed us to use the right CDN at the right time, the right price, for the right, so the right tools for the job. So now we use, essentially, I'll just tell you, we use Akamai, um, uh, Amazon, and Level 3, and we switch between them all dynamically. We use a piece of technology called Conviva to do that. So we're sort of monitoring the QoS in the network, and we, we, we can anticipate if, if you're on Comcast in San Francisco and that area is experiencing problems, we're going to move it to another CDN. Um, or do you, can, do you can you see things like oh the Breaking Bad premiere just got released to you know to uh, iTunes and so we know that whoever Apple is, like Apple uses Akamai or used to use Akamai and so maybe we'll pump some trap. Do you do things like that? Or? I mean we don't see that it's Breaking Bad. You know okay like, you're not like, you're not it, like but, it's, hmm, what's but coming it's, out here. But it is the internet and the, you know there's a bunch of it happening at that same time. So yeah we'll we'll divert. But this this allows for for quality of experience yeah. right to improve quality. Uh, it also helps us with operational and sort of cost savings because if you think about it like so in one case one of our cdns cap they give us great baseline rates but they cap us at a certain point so we go past those caps and we take a hit 
we we avoid those ca- those caps by switching right and going to another CDN. At, so we manipulate this throughout the day, throughout the night. At this point, how consistent is your traffic? Do you have times like on one day huge peaks that are twice as much traffic as normal, or is, are you big enough now that it's kind of flattened out? We're in the hits business, so when there's a One Direction or a Miley Cyrus video premiere, man, it spikes. And and see, it's those spikes that we needed to build for. That's what we didn't have in the past. When I first got to Vivo, I remember, and I'll just admit this, I remember, you know, we do a push notification for the latest One Direction video. Gazillions of people started watching that video, and, you know, API would come down. Yeah. And then we're done, right? So that, that, that wasn't acceptable, if you can imagine. So, so we've since fixed that. We've got a better environment. We're both in the cloud. We're hybridized. We're in the cloud. We're in Rackspace. We're using AWS. So, and, and we're multiple zones. We have sort of redundancy, so, so it's very protected now. So we, we actually invite these spikes, and we have them like several of them a week. That's definitely one thing that cloud providers are good for is covering really, really large spikes. Let me ask Chris a question about Pandora. What's your, is your traffic pretty consistent? Yeah, very consistent. A year to year, there's some seasonal traffic relative to holiday and summer that you see with many services when people are out and about more. But generally speaking, it's a consistent curve throughout the day. As our devices have um, proliferated, we've noticed, though, the evenings have increased, so the curve is flat, flatter throughout the day. Do you ever have issues where suddenly you, know, every, there, you have huge spikes or you have double your amount of traffic? Does no. that ever happen? No. Okay. It's a consistent growth. Uh, along that same line, Brewster, do you guys ever see certain things happen where you get huge boosts in traffic, like maybe today when all the government websites are shut down? <laughs> yeah, we, we've been getting a little bit more traffic on that. Well, let's see. We do about five petabytes a month, and we're, we're based, we've found that uh, you can be really cheap if you want to, that you can own your own. I, I'm really kind of suspicious of the cloud. I don't like having somebody else own my crap and, and want to be able to turn it on and off. So it's actually – bandwidth is really cheap now. So you can actually do it yourselves, or you can come to a cloud provider like, I guess, me. But then we're cheap because we're free. But it's inexpensive. To be able to go and make sure you do quality of service delivery in Argentina at every second, that's probably, you know, that's something we can't guarantee. But the basics of the Internet bandwidth is now very inexpensive. It's about a dollar per megabit per month. Sort of if, if you buy it. Yeah, I'd say never pay, if you're in the streaming business, never pay more than a dollar a megabit. So it, it's, it's actually kind of under control. We're about 10 to 15 gigabits per second is sort of where we average. Do you do that out of a colo facility or are you... No, uh, we own a church. And this is all actually in your church. Yeah. We bought a church because we we tried going in, you know, these colos or or these AWSs, they they suck money out of you. And so uh, that that didn't work. So we had our own data centers and that didn't work because, you know, all these air conditioners. And if you have a landlord... Well, just don't have a landlord. So we bought a church and so that we could go and control it ourselves. We don't have air conditioning and it works. And so then we had to get a good enough pipe out of the place. 10 gigabits isn't that hard. But if you, if you can get dark fiber, which is really hard, took us a long time, then you can figure out how to get 50 gigabits over it really cheaply. If you want to know how, let me know. Um, more people should be doing this. We need more places. The idea of, of centralizing in, in fewer and fewer places, whether the YouTubes or the Vivos, I think is dangerous to the Internet ecology because then somebody else, uh, their terms of service, governs whether your stuff is going to be up or not. And in a world where, at least that I want to live in, I don't want to operate under somebody else's terms of service, which is a contract that, you know, who knows. I want to be under rule of law. If it's a real problem, they have to come and see me. And that would be the and, – and it wants to be the government has to come and see me. Otherwise, it rolls. And I, so that's the, uh, the, the world that we try to, to live in. So it, it is possible to live at gigabits per second, tens of gigabits per second, and survive in relatively small environments. So you brought in dark fiber. That involved, I'm sure, trenching up a street or something? Or? Uh, no, relationship with the city. Okay. And then we got it to 200 Paul, and we could dump Where it there. Where is your church we, Physically? What? In the Richmond district. Okay. Please come and visit us. It's what really kind fun. Of reli- what kind of religion um, was so, the church? Yeah, um, it's, it's Friday lunch is free. It's really <laughs> it's cool. And get a tour around. It's a blast. And you know, we have racks of computers, the blink lights and stuff. And these computers are just infinitely fast. It doesn't take that much to serve really high spikes, even in the sort of realms that at least we're yeah. talking about. Which is, it sounds like it's about one-tenth of what it is uh, you guys are doing. But I'm not sure. It might be on the order of Pandora because you guys we, are just audio. We do. In, in August, we did 36, over 36 petabytes. Okay. So you're, you're, you're a factor of seven, eight more than we are. Yeah. Wow. 
Can you talk about the server infrastructure that Pandora uses? Like, you, I guess, operate your own data centers. How many of them are there? Or yeah, roughly? so we, we generally started with a group of engineers who, uh, while had a passion for music, were all technologists. And to us, the most obvious thing was to build this stuff ourselves. We also have a healthy skepticism of the cloud and the services they provide. And generally, they haven't had the uptime that we've had over the years, so we feel pretty good about that decision. So we have all of our own servers. We have, at this point, we have five major data centers that serve audio, one in New Zealand and the rest spread out the U.S. And we've built sort of our own internal CDN where we understand, obviously, all of us are playing files, audio, video, based on what we we think people are going to anticipate what we think they're going to want to hear on a given day, right? So, because it is a popularity, there is some element to people want to hear current stuff. Generally, there's stuff that's more popular now. So you'll roll out the hits to more servers yeah. than you will the, the deep tracks. Yeah. So okay. we basically have some one new. I don't know how. I'm hoping this group. They're trying to put the tech back in music tech. So hopefully this group is uh, pretty technical. But the we basically have one new servers that can serve close to four and a half. It was three, but now it's four and a half gigs per second. They put everything into a few, we put all the music onto a Fusion I.O. card, which is basically serving it right out of memory. And then so they can just serve vast amounts of music super fast and very low. So the church, this is how you're going to maybe stay in the church. Yeah. Wow, Fusion I.O. cards, hey, that's great. Chris, real quick question. So I love Pandora, right? But why? Like, so I have like Prince Radio, right? But like, I always start to hear the same stuff. And I'm tired of hearing the same stuff, dude. Like... What's the deal with oh, that? You from guys, a this is from a, a whole tech- other discussion. We from a technology have. standpoint, like the, what's going on there? That the, I'm getting the same stuff. The, the reality is, is you like to hear the same stuff. Oh, <laughs> that's why you come back. By you, that's, he that's means you plural. We're, we're 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 vastly beyond anything broadcast radio is doing today, and we give you the same stuff because, generally speaking, that familiarity to you is what brings you back. So while we don't strike the perfect balance and are constantly trying to get better at that, we have a huge team of scientists that we've recently hired who are really focused on that stuff. You need that the reality is you that need says, I'm mainstream, Rusty I'm understands wacky. this as well as any of us. Like, you have to bring those in to, to keep the audience. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, we're, some FM is like just the opposite. We're huge, huge deep tracks. You, know, like you won't hear a repeat. Probably if you listen 24-7, you might hear one song repeated twice in a week but that'd be the the big hot song we're featuring not the normal one so we're <laughs> so listen to us instead no, are, but, are, there, are there certain hot sweet spots on on soma that like what like what's what's the most played song ever or genre or anything well no i'm trying uh, it's hard to say which particular song is the most played like do you have like um, iron maiden fans on there or is no, it like no i mean because remember we're we're creating all our own playlists we're all curated so we have yeah. 26 or 27 channels right now that are human curated and we do stats on like we keep track of like our top tens we report are based on how many people are listening to a given song in each week so it's just if you if we play a song in like the peak listener period it'll move up higher on the charts but we don't particularly we don't go too far out of our way to schedule things that way unless it's something new that we're featuring then we'll make sure it gets played during the peak times but yeah it's not we're not having people vote on it we have added a new feature to our mobile app where if you love a song, you can click this button that says love. And it just, it's all those are as analytics to go back to the DJ so they can hear like what songs people really liked. Mostly they just look at that information and say, huh, interesting. But every now and then they're like, oh, that's awesome because I wasn't sure if people were going to like that song. I know I really liked it, but it took me like three listens before I got into it. And now a bunch of people are saying they love it. So that's good positive feedback. We were thinking of adding a WTF button. So if we played something that didn't... <laughs> You know, like it's because we do play some, we do try to surprise people, and every now and then we'll get, you know, e- email from people like, why did you play that? It didn't make any sense at all. And so it'd be, it'd be interesting to see some metrics on that. But now we're getting off the topic of the tech side of things. Blame Alex. I mean, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, that was Alex that time. Yeah. So, Michael, why did you guys decide to go with the CDN in the very beginning? I mean, really, it, it was a resource thing, I think. Yeah. I think there was like just a couple of folks. And, and, you're, to... and you are streaming video, which is higher bit rates and, high, and much bigger files, too. Yeah, I mean, we generally start at 200K. We get to about 5,200K. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like there's a spectrum there. And I, I noticed one of the things we were speaking about in, in the green room was, you know, what do we do for mobile in particular and, and what we'll do 
except for Android, because Android's progressive download. So everywhere else, we'll start at about 200K initially to get things going, and then we'll start boosting up to... Is that RTMP you're doing to everything except... No, it's HLS on iOS. It's RTMP okay. on the web. Okay. That's the only place we're using uh, RTMP. We want to go to HLS everywhere. That, that's a goal of ours. We're not there yet. You know, we're doing smooth streaming on Xbox. Where else are we doing smooth streaming on... Um, is it Roku? Microsoft, Microsoft stuff. Yeah, all the Microsoft stuff. What say what? No, we're not doing any Dash. Interesting. Yeah. HLS is HTTP live streaming. It was uh, originally developed by Apple, as I recall. Yeah. Is anybody using that for just audio streaming, or is it mostly video? Because in my opinion, when I looked at it, the protocol seemed a little heavy for doing low bit rate audio streaming. But if you're doing like you know, 200, 500 KB a second video clips, it makes a lot of sense. Anybody? No? No. No, okay. And did you say why you chose that over RTMP? Basically because you can change bandwidths easily on the fly? Well, no, we're, we're using RTMP on the web. Okay, uh, oh, on the web. Yeah, and we're using HLS on iOS and as many right, other places it's, as we can. it's built into yeah, the exactly. device. Just, yeah. yeah, exactly. What do you do on Android devices? Um, on Android, what are we doing, guys? We have some people from uh, Vivo here. Is it SmoothStream on Android? Okay. Is that why it's progressive? Yeah. 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 So. Alex, what formats uh, do you use to stream out to your... To your um, your users and your apps, are using uh, MP3, AAC. Uh, we mostly use AAC, 128K, 128, 128. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you're sending really high quality files out here. Yeah, because a lot of our users, surprisingly, even though it's their own thing, they are very very picky about the quality of the sound. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Do you have 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 like extra reverb effects? Oh, we have a lot of effects. Yeah, Mm -hmm. reverb, a lot of uh, hall concert effects. Are those effects added when the person's recording the file before they submit it to you, or do you do you add those effects on the on the back end? On the iOS device, we do it almost real time. Okay, so, so you can process and even hear the monitoring okay. at the same time. Yeah, interesting. So streaming wise, we actually mostly just use HTTP streaming. Okay, so we, we consider HLS or those things, but the overhead and all those things doesn't make much sense. Okay, I'm going to ask a question now for the entire panel. Latency does it really matter? Anybody? Mm-hmm. The most important thing is to get the music started as soon as possible. So it, beyond that, it doesn't matter. So initially, it's a problem. But, but like 200 milliseconds versus 500 milliseconds to start the song streaming, does that matter? No, not to most of and us. And then when you have... Our a, expectations are generally pretty low for this stuff. <laughs> when you have a playlist started on Pandora, how soon before one song ends do you start sending the next song so, to it? Do you do it before so it ends? So we control all of our own clients. So yeah. we can build all sorts of complicated buffering technologies into that. So the balance we try to strike is uh, downloading the song soon enough, but not before we think they want to hear it or might not listen to it. So, right, because you so don't want to waste the bandwidth on something you're not going to hear. But you, would like start, so, you could start sending them the file like five seconds before a song ended. Right. Okay. Do you, and um, it depends on the connectivity at that, at that particular time for that particular device. And do you rush as much as the file out to the client? Like if, if you're doing like a 64K stream and they have, you know, say, 500KB of bandwidth, when they start playing a song, are you buffering up as much as you can or are you handing that file out gradually? Like are you streaming that file or are you just doing a progressive download as fast as the it, client can take it? It depends, but once we're sure they want to hear it, we generally rush it down to the okay. client. Is that... Um, is that because of uh, you want to make sure you're not wasting bandwidth? Is that I mean, what's the reason for doing that? Uh, just to make sure it's there when they want to hear it. No, you, I mean, like, why, why so you, most. I mean, a lot of our listening is happening on cell networks, right? Right. So, so your so cell you network is only as good as it currently is. So, yeah. Well, it, Pandora relative streaming, the relative streaming usage of Pandora is low. It's not video. It's not gonna. It's not gonna hit you up to the. You'd have to listen all the time for it to even hit your mobile cap. Right. So we're not too worried about that. But I've seen there's some services that uh, that will like try to pre-cache ahead like three or four different songs on the device and send it out, and that the person never listens to it. You know, they downloaded you know twenty twenty five k or twenty five megs or something. That would get expensive. Right. That's Imagine right. the royalties. Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother panel. <laughs> I remember reading that the design goal for the peer-to-peer system that Spotify runs on was 200 milliseconds latency, and it was actually doing better than that. It was as fast as iTunes on your disc. Mm -hmm. So for that kind of service, yeah, you need it. For radio services, no. Well, yeah, all all of us are interactive to some degree, right? We want to react when you skip. We want to react when you thumb, when you change stations. Well, in some FM's case, we're... 
we're a, we're we're basically a linear broadcaster, so we're not letting we don't do skipping, we don't do custom streams. So, so the only time stations. latency is yeah is when you're switching stations or you're initially starting. So for us, like we've chosen to save money and not worry so much about uh, having CDNs in places where we can get the you know just the fastest latency. And if it takes 200 milliseconds longer to start your initial stream, that's okay because you're going to be listening to it for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or longer. So, uh, Brewster, talk to me about. I'm still curious about the whole dark fiber thing. Can you go into more detail? You said, like, you're partnering with the city. I know the city of San Francisco has a dark fiber network. Yeah. So San Francisco owns What, what do I have to buy to get on this? That's what I really want to know. You just have to be a nice guy. It's kind of like the old-time Internet. It all depends on who you are, whether you get a, one of these imps. So it, it, it's kind of crufty. It would be much better if you could actually just buy dark fiber. Um, but it's really just impossible. It's non-obtainium. Yeah. Um, but if you can Which get... Which is weird because there's a lot of it around. Oh, there's tons of it. They just won't sell it to you because... It's like you it's know, too they, hard to sell it. They suck. And <laughs> so anyway, please go into the business of putting in pipes, places that other people can run a ton of dark fiber through. Or you know, just plummet or if in your city or whatever. Uh, just make it so that there can be dark fiber because otherwise you get reamed at sort of a gigabit or 10 gigabits. Um, and there's sort of this wall that you get to at 10 gigabits where then you have to move out and um, – and you have to go and move into a co-location center or something yeah. like that just to be able to get cost-effective mechanisms of getting above that. There's a cool way that you can take five uh, 10 gigabit channels and, and passively, optically, by using different colors on your, uh, on your Dell switch, seriously, Dell switch, um, and different colors, and then passively mirror it together, put it down a fiber, and then passively go and fire it back out again and put it into a Dell switch. This thing is cheap, and you can basically have 50 gigabits per second, which then allows you to do uh, even more of what we like to do, which is give stuff away. Um, that if we can keep it cheap enough, then we can do things at enormous scale rather than have, having to basically figure out how to put ads in front of people. Um, something, uh, just to jump back into your um, low latency thing, something we think we've cracked through. What we would really wanted to do is make it so you can go and build a performance out of lots of different streams and compositing it in real time. Right now, if you want to go and make a new performance, you have to download all this stuff, edit it together, and then post it into a Vivo or YouTube or something like that. But what if you could go and make a new performance with different streams coming in, with different videos coming in, and switch between them? without buffering problems, without the little spinny thing. And you could go and make a little HTML file that would describe uh, um, something that's composited from a lot of different sources. Wouldn't that be great? Um, there was a crack, uh, crack through. We think we got on this as MP4s, uh, MPEG-4s, videos. You can jump. It's difficult to jump into the middle because of iframes. Yeah. Um, because they're often their iframes are only every 10 seconds, and you don't want it to start on a 10-second, and most browsers can't do diddly-squat. Um, but there's ways of faking the headers, so you can jump in at a particular frame um, and make it, make it so that uh, on the server side, you can go and do frame-accurate video clipping um, to go and put it to somebody's browser. Does that make sense? And so we're, what we're trying to do is enable more people to be producers, of, of music and then going having it stream around or if you want to be an editor or curator you can go and put things together without having to have an enormous company behind you and can you go and make your own videos um, out of a lot of pieces of video on the internet without having to go and own your own infrastructure so basically like you have some concert footage with you know one whole song or a group of songs shot from five different camera angles or different people in the audience or whatnot. Switch and between then you them. can switch between them in real time. Or make you your own... see like a little preview at the top like it was a control. Yeah, or, or go for a music video. Yeah. You know, say you have an audio track that you like, and then you want to composite pieces from lots of other things that if you put it together, you'd get sued. Um, so if you can do that, wouldn't that be kind of fun to go and make your own video uh, and just pass it around as a small HTML file. Yeah, you, I think it leverages the Internet towards doing what it's good at, is basically using resources from all over the world to make something really cool for you right now. It's interesting because you say like it's not, it's not illegal for the end user to put that stuff together to view it in that kind of way. It would be in violation of copyright law. You'd for probably you get to taken down from uh, YouTube if you tried. Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So t what, tell me more about like how many servers does the archive have? Um, Roughly. Thousands? Hundreds? Uh, uh, maybe a thousand. They're 4U machines. So How many pews? 
How many pews? Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of stacked in the pews. You've got to come over. It's really fun. Um, so there, there are racks of computers there. It's about a petabyte in a rack these days. Um, it's 36 hard drive machines um, that are four U's high. Um, they, we stack them these days with four gigabyte hard drives. So it's about 1.2 petabytes in a rack. It costs about $100,000. Um, we, we have two. Uh, we always buy them in pairs, and we have them in two different data centers so that uh, they're, they're basically application-level RAID. We don't do RAID within themselves. Yeah. Um, and it has, you know, a bunch of RAM so that they, it just, they, they're just infinitely fast. Um, in general, we have two one-gigabit connections, but on the sort of super studs, we, we go for 10-gigabit um, connections into these things. Um, how many racks do we We have about 40 petabytes, so I guess 50, 60 racks at this point, um, 40 petabytes of spinning store, 15 petabytes of, of, of original data. And that's sort of our scale. Do you get all your bandwidth from one particular provider, or do you get a mix? Are you like doing BGP? Um, we, go th- or you- we go through an, a, a nonprofit ISP called uh, the Internet Software Consortium and run by Paul Vixie. He wrote Bind, the DNS system. Uh, we really like investing in the nonprofit infrastructure as much as we can. And then they basically peer out to a bunch of different places. Um, we also use Hurricane Electric mm-hmm. um, to, to take so 10 gigabits like and put bandwidth, that straight on the net. So how do you like Because I'm just about to buy some from them. Hurricane Electric, great. Okay, good. Absolutely fab. And they're really cheap right now, too. I don't think I can say the actual price we'd be paying, but you know, if you commit to like a gigabit with them, it's easy to get it for well under a dollar a megabit per second. So. It's kind of crazy to think about, like, you get a gigabit pipe in a commercial environment, which means you can push out a gigabit as well as pull in a gigabit, uh, you know, for $1,000 a month. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I mean, when we first started doing this stuff back in, like, 99, 2000, you know, good bandwidth from places like UNet was something like $300 a megabit. And the cheapest, I think, isn't that when Cogent announced, oh, we can do it for only $75 a megabit? And at the time, it was like, oh, so cheap, $75 a megabit. Now it's like a one-hundredth of that. You want to talk about some of the boxes you guys use at Pandora? Yeah, I was going to ask Brewster, how many, does a file exist, does a concert exist once and only once in your... Uh, twice. There are two, two machines that mirror. Okay, so no other. more than twice. No more than twice. And so if they're really popular, you say you can sync a machine. And it, right. is, it, is, theoretic, it is possible. But generally, the files that are popular move into RAM. And nice. then they're, they're, they're basically served at wire speed. Um, and that, that seems to work out pretty well. Sometimes the uh, Japanese get really psyched about uploading anime. And that, uh, some, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. So anyway, we, there, there's that. <laughs> that's, yeah. Oh, wait. Let, before you go on, is your mix, are you, because you're crawling the internet all the time, right? We're, we're crawling, crawling the internet, yeah. So what, what's your ratio of inbound to outbound? Oh, it's almost all outbound. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Chris. Tell us about your setup. We have about 1,400 total servers in production, about 300 which are responsible for delivering the audio. Again, we built this sort of uh, homegrown CDN, so there's probably 50 that are serving the majority of the, of the audio. I think, and all, we can really only talk about August numbers because we're a public company, but the, um, the August numbers were we peaked out at 228 gigs per second. So your, your build on sort of 95th, well, wow. we're all build on 95th percentile, right? That's... I don't think that's giving anything away. Uh, you're building so you on 95 like percent of the time. 150 times to 170 times bigger than we are. Wow. You should play more hits. <laughs> <laughs> there goes the mission statement. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, jokes aside. So that's cost effective, uh, right? I mean, yeah. 300 computers to run Pandora is, yeah. you know, it's, that's not that big a deal. And if we're talking 228 gigabits per second is your peak, but let's just, you know, say, okay, it's a, it's a dollar per megabit per month. That, that's 228K dollars per month or $2 million a year-ish. I don't know. Um, the, you know, it's pretty well, a- you know, that's to run a Pandora. So it's just not that expensive. Bandwidth-wise. I mean, bandwidth it's hard to have wise. the really smart yeah. guys behind the scientists, blah, 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 blah. But the bandwidth and the hardware itself is really not the big factor anymore. No. The, yeah. when, when we built out the model, uh, to Rusty's point, I mean, you started years before we did, but we built out the model. I believe the, the, megs, the megabits are like 16 yeah. or something like that. It's pretty amazing how much it's just totally commoditized now and very competitive. And we are we try lots of providers. I don't 
actually even know any at this point. I know was responsible for signing the initial contract, so I remember I kind of remember who we started with. But we're constantly trading off and measuring. We do a lot around the quality of service and monitoring. We know who's good. Are you who pulling all your your backbone providers like into one BGP connection, or are you yeah. like or are you pulling we, like some servers are going out on on some backbones? Or? Uh, no, it's all pulled over BGP. Okay. Because our, our infrastructure, because we're, we're cheaper and different, we basically we run these little Sun uh, Intel Atom 1U boxes. Uh, so they're very low power. But we find that on one of those with uh, just, just 2 gigs of memory in it, we can serve easily uh, 6,000 or more concurrent 128K streams uh, using the Shoutcast, Icecast protocol, HTTP protocol. Uh, we actually have pushed it. Higher, like during the holidays, uh, like the you know Christmas Eve was like a giant. We had like five thousand extra concurrent listeners that night, and I think we pushed one of our boxes to just over like eighty five hundred concurrence. And the load average on the box was super super high, but there was no rebuffering, and everything worked. Yeah, I would and, say we, we average probably <clears throat> more than fifty thousand listeners per box. Yeah, so you can. I mean, so these boxes we buy by the time the whole thing is put together, the hardware f- is like five hundred dollars, and that's in the small quantity. Some FM buys them in. And, yeah, so you, uh, the piece of hardware and the Internet connection, which is, you know, at the most $1,000 a month, and you can serve off that, you know, 7,000 or more listeners. So. We, to Brewster's point, we, have more, we almost have more service supporting our Hadoop infrastructure than we do supporting our streaming. How, how, uh, what would you say the ratios of your servers doing, like the analytics and stuff? That, that's what I mean, like it's one-to-one. Okay, yeah. all right. <laughs> the Hadoop cluster can't grow fast enough. We can just very slowly grow the media thing. We understand that pretty well at this point. Interesting, Alex. Tell me a little bit about the hardware you guys are using because you built you built up your whole your whole infrastructure. You're not using any CDNs. Uh, no, not really. Actually, two years ago we moved away from Amazon Cloud. It's getting really really bad for us. So we decided to build our own colon. When you say bad, you mean expensive or you mean unreliable? Uh, couple fold. The one is yeah, the reliability, the outage, network latency. Another is uh, Expensive, okay. and also one major reason actually was our architecture was not built for the cloud. So we basically, pretty much borrowed the, or used the hardware to give us headroom to scale up, to give us some time. So they, but did but you guys already have the competency in network engineering and scale and all that? Did you have that <coughs> internally, or did you have to go find that? Uh, actually, we pretty much uh, built every, all these talented together at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a real good point because I mean I came from a background working with a lot of companies doing streaming infrastructure for them. And that's the because if we if I have didn't have that expertise yet, you'd have to go to some sort of CDN exactly or service so, provider. Right. Well, Be nice to your sysadmins. Yes. Right. They are they are very very good people and the ops and the DevOps are very different kind of person as well. So we have to treat them differently. <laughs> but it's actually pretty interesting um, since we built everything for the last two years actually. The bandwidth cost, actually, I was surprised because we're paying like a $5 a megabps right now. So I definitely need to hook up with you guys. <laughs> and also, uh, Where do you colo at, if you don't uh, mind saying? Uh, we're colo at a facility called Layer 42. It's next to the Google campus in okay. Mountain So our bandwidth is basically provided uh, mostly through NTT. And okay. uh, we're peaking at about 1.5 gigabps. NTT is good but expensive in my experience. Yeah, it's kind of expensive. <laughs> Yeah, so like, so basically, if you have the technical inf- if you have the technical experience, it's totally worth pulling it off yourself. If you don't, you know, it's going to take a while to come up to speed. And some of it's not that hard, but it takes a lot of uh, experience, like knowing like these little things that can go wrong and little things to monitor and doing things. You know, basically, you're building up your own kind of content distribution network. And while it may not even, like in our case, it's not really, it's not very geographically diverse, but it's, it's you know, we're distributing loads over various different servers and whatnot. Should we ask for questions? Yeah, I see some hands back there. You and the green. There to Alex about whether, I, I'm not exactly sure what you were asking, but you were asking something along the lines of, did you have to go outside to find the expertise? Yeah, he asked if he had the core competency inside the company. Yeah, do you guys see that as I, f- I find the opposite, and the opposite is essentially finding people who are able to do something like AWS well is significantly harder than finding people who are able to sort of live in a standard colo environment that's you know fronted by a CDN just because it's older. I think that's true, but I think you need fewer of those guys <laughs> – 
than you do of the other guys. I think it also depends on how much software development you're doing. If you have yeah. to do a lot of software development, you you know your your software guys are going to be fairly familiar with rolling out something on AWS just for prototyping. Yeah, any good software dev can run the whole stack. But right? a lot of developers aren't going to be able to like unpack a server and install it in a colo and configure the switches and the router. Do some show a- commands. AWS well is really difficult. <clears throat> I mean, Netflix was down for Christmas Day, and they have thousands-plus engineers, and they just had open source this magnificent system that allows you to load balance across AWS. It's really difficult to do that stuff. Yeah, I I agree. I actually think it's significantly more difficult. And maybe it's not better, then. To find, pack a server, and, you know, get it up and running. To me, it seems like that's actually easier to find people than that can do that. It seems like AWS is easy to do because you manage everything just through a web browser, right? So you figure everybody can just click stuff in a web browser. But I think doing it well, I agree with Chris. It's To me, those people are way harder to find and way more expensive if they have the experience. It's like you, you kind of have to decide, you know, do you want to build networks or do you want to build user experience? You don't want to build distribution. Like what's, what's the one thing that you have to do really, really well that differentiates you, differentiates you from anybody else? That's sometimes a hard decision at the business level. Yeah, agreed. Another thing you need to worry about with CDNs is uh, uptime because people talk about like, oh, we have 99.9% uptime, which is not very good. <laughs> you know, that's, you don't that's want days. That. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I remember we were signing a deal with someone we were working with, and they said, we need at least 99.9% up time. I'm like, huh, no problem. <laughs> because what does that, what does that turn out to be a month? Uh, uh, I, uh, I only know, we're, we have almost five nines yeah, I mean, in like, our eight years, and that's we, like a couple hours a year. Yeah, yeah, three nines at a minimum. It's, it's days. Yeah. Two, three nines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two nines. It'd be three days. Yeah, ninety nine point nine 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 percent is like the thing, is probably the the minimum acceptable, and uh, try to get higher if you can. But you know we, yeah. So I, I'm always amused by when I hear about you know either like cloud services or hosting services. They talk about and we get guarantee uptime at ninety nine point nine percent. I'm like, oh, not very good, especially when that you know point one percent of the month is happening in the middle of the day on your busiest day of the week. So what are some of the challenges going forward? With uh, you know, as the as the audience gets bigger, I mean, we're still the audience is still growing at if not an exponential rate, and it's still a very linear rate. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think in our case, it's about the CDN flexibility that we've got. We've got to keep doing that. We got to probably do some more with caching down the stretch as we get bigger. Um, there's you know, we're, we're probably a huge magnitude away from having to do a Netflix and building it all out and getting racks and stacks and getting into that business. Um, but but the, the Netflix got out of that business. They got into that. and then They, they got in and then they got out. Yeah, yeah, so like, what's going on? Why did they do that? Why did they like get out? It's a good question. It's Brewster, why did they get out? You're, you're the man who likes to do it all yourself. So. SF movie tech. Why, why, did, why do you think Netflix <laughs> decided to move into the cloud from doing their own hardware? I don't know. <laughs> All right. I mean, I mean, no idea. I mean, they have infinite money, right? I mean, there's a bunch of things that you can do if you can just write a check and like, woo, uh, and and maybe you know, making something somebody else's problem. I know a lot of times a, a lot of senior management will think like, oh, I can just outsource all my worry about this to this other company because we have an SLA in place, and uh, and there's probably a lot to be said for that. If you're someone who's like, you know, if you're a, a technical senior management at a company and you're managing product development and you're managing infrastructure. I don't know. I, I think you, you may be a little, uh, everything fails. Everything fails. So design for it. So you have to farm everything. Everything has to be farmed and everything has to be multi-homed. And, and I'm not a big sort of, you know, ISO 9000, whatever, you know, single point of failure, because we have enough of those because we go down a lot. But just design for failure. So the idea of expecting Amazon as having computers that won't fail is just, it's just not going to happen. So you can go and try to make it so that you fake it for at least almost all of your users to try to make it so that you look like you're still up, even though your hard drives are keeling right. over all the time. You know, whatever that new OS build that you just installed, which was going to work, didn't. All those sorts of things. It just, it happens. So be able to run in a hybrid environment where you have the older version and the newer version running, backing each other up until one, you know, sort of works out. I remember about a year ago, March, we launched 
a newer version of Vivo, which is now today's Vivo, and it was a whole new deal. I remember we were at South by Southwest, and it was going to be this big to-do, you know, the new Vivo, see music play, the big tag. Everything was, like, tied into this thing. And we launch at, like, you know, 3.34 in the, in the morning, um, and it didn't, it did, the push didn't go well, and nothing was working, but we lived on cash for, like, four hours. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Designing, designing for your stuff to fail. I mean, it's what's that one acronym? Uh, Rake, redundant array of inexpensive computers. Rather than having, you know, worrying about RAID and of the drives, you just have diverse computers. You have a way to deal with that. I mean, you sort of told me what's, what's the software you're using to manage your CDNs. Uh, so Conviva. I, Conviva. And can if if like one of your CDNs completely failed, that could route around that. Effectively? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In, in in real time. I mean, and we can. There are smart um, provisions we can put in place to say if X, then Y. So there are rules. You're, you're in an interesting position that you're big enough and you do enough business with your CDNs that you can have one, multiple CDNs, but, and you can also put a lot of financial leverage on them. A lot of small guys starting out don't always have that. I think doing that drove our CDN prices down 60%. Yeah. There's a company I work with that uses both Limelight and Akamai, but they use them for completely different things. And I keep, you know, I'm like, you can't leverage one another off each other by doing completely different stuff. Right. Like they're using Akamai for their desktop stuff and Limelight for their uh, mobile devices. And so it's, yeah, it, it is, if you can afford to have multiple CDNs, it's definitely best to have some sort of system where you can turn one off and immediately switch over to the other or, you know, just mix and match. Um, what do you guys do about uh, fault tolerance and redundancy? I, I, you, so he, he just he had a panel about an hour and a half ago sort of talking about their whole technical infrastructure that I snuck in for part of, and I saw one thing where you had a couple of routers and a couple of backbone connections. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. As Bruce mentioned, uh, Bruce mentioned that we basically build everything multi-home as well, so we don't trust any single point of machine to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. So pretty much all the switches, all the servers, the dual home, the network, power, everything. So right now we have about 150 ser- servers, and uh, we, we're trying, definitely for the next year, we're trying to move to uh, second colo, all those kind of things. Our okay. network definitely is getting saturated, and the Christmas is usually the big time for the mobile devices. And I probably will consider buying a concert hall or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what did you say? You guys have five colos? Yeah, five, five colos, five but only 1,400 servers. If, uh, um, if, if, um, if one of your colos like went off the air, like you know, seven years ago or six years ago, 365 Main had a big failure and yeah. took two floors down. Yeah. Um, if that happened, how do how do you we, recover? We weren't from? in that. No, but I mean, how do you recover? Well, how do you recover? We from that? have uh, our redundancy right now is uh, so the the media is fully redundant across the five co- colos. The application server logic's redundant into uh, servers in Virginia. Not we're not serving that traffic out simultaneously. Currently, that's in the cards, but not currently available. So uh, the downtime to move all the traffic over there. Is, so you, know, you basically have five copies of each song around the country? Is that No, more no. than that. Oh, more than that. Well, okay. There's 300 total servers oh, oh, serving, right. I'm sorry. serving have, media. Yeah. So, but all the, all the media is duplicated on all, each different site? Like if you lost four of the five, could you still function? Uh, we might run out of bandwidth, but... Okay, but it's still yeah, yeah. interesting. Okay. We, I mean, we served out of San Jose for we served everything out of San Jose for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, akin right. to what you're doing today. Yeah. Uh, back there on the green shirt. Yeah, um, I don't. I, I actually have three questions. And can you uh, say who you're with or what you do so we have a context too? Yeah, uh, um, my name's Travis Atkins. I'm with a small startup called Piggyback. Um, we can talk, you know, whatever. I can give you the pitch later. But um, are you in stealth mode? The, uh, w- yeah, we are now. I- I'm happy to tell you what we're doing. But um, the so three questions. One, Chris, you said something about uh, downloading uh, the songs, caching them on the device, and that you'd have to pay royalties. I don't know anything about the music space. That's why I'm here. So do do um, do the uh, sort of rules for paying royalties not take into account like user interface, meaning like. Even if the user doesn't end up seeing it or hearing it, do you still it, have to pay if it gets copied to the device? It's complicated. It's, it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you're, f- there's all sorts of different the, royalty agreements. There's like private agreements, and then there's like the uh, uh, the compulsory statutory. statutory rated ones. But the the music industry lawyers argue that if you're using the statutory one, if you deliver the content, the, 
to the device that counts as a a performance of it. And they even go as far as saying it doesn't matter how much you deliver. You deliver one second of it. Or one bit. Yeah, or one bit, which makes no sense because one bit can't represent anything. Um, And, of course, then on the the technology side, there are people saying, no, 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 it doesn't count unless it's, you know, 60 seconds of it. It doesn't count. There's a whole bunch of arguments there. There's been no court case that I know of that's decided on that. There's a lot of private agreements that uh, people have, like, Vivo, all your all your agreements are yeah. You have to, your videos. Your there's sync license, all private agreements. So um, you can read about what Apple's done too. Yeah, Apple and Spotify is different. Pandora, you guys operate under the compulsory. Yeah. So yeah, in that case, you would not want to cache stuff ahead of time. Okay. Spotify, you know, of course, it has direct deals with everybody. Slacker, uh, for the most part, does too. If you're familiar with Slacker.com. Sure, sure. Another Pandora-like service. But one of the things they... I was talking to one of their folks a while back and he was saying, we put... Uh, we, we do direct deals. People were playing a lot of their music. We do... Uh, we use the statutory rates for, you know, long-tail stuff, things we're not doing as much as... So they could cash all the content that they had direct deals with because their direct deals allowed caching. It's kind of... Basically, not, copyright law is like... offline... Yeah, Co- copyright law is, is a big mess still when it comes to the digital stuff because it doesn't take into account, you know, there there was a point in time where they were saying, this is like 12 years ago, that every time a piece of music passed through a router, it was being recreated in memory in that router before moving on to the next router. And so you had to pay the royalty for each hop on the internet it went through, which makes no sense at all, especially because the router is only storing, you know, you know, one frame maybe at the most, you know, those are all copies. yeah, those are all copies. And so you should pay for them. Uh, so the, you know, it's, it's copyright law is not in sync exactly. with, uh, yeah. And it's, it's an, it's an ugly thing to talk about. Is right it now. coincidence that the music business was like started by the mob? <laughs> uh, other questions? So yeah, my, uh, the second question I had was, uh, there's, uh, there's been a number of large, consumer-facing ISPs that have effectively tried to... They pretend that they don't really understand the conceptual underpinnings of peering and have asked Netflix to pay for access to their customers, meaning they'd like Netflix to... You know, Comcast would like Netflix to pay just to get access to those customers. That's happened in the video space. Has that happened at all in the audio space? Well, we're all we're all paying for access to people's. Co- we're all paying we, for access. We do to some peering. I don't know that to be a challenge for us. It depends. It depends on. We're too small. No, no. I, I'm saying obviously you guys like go through peers to get the traffic out. What no, I'm no, saying no, is we do we do peering. Right, we but peering some of the some of those larger consumer facing ISPs have tried to sort of ask Netflix to pay for you know what they call. Well, wasn't that they were to- actually asking. Uh, who was at level three? Netflix's CDN to pay for more access to them, yeah, and yes. yeah, so that I mean it wasn't figuring so, that Netflix would end up paying. But if if you know if if level three just had a huge number of other customers instead of one big customer, they would still have to pay for that kind of connectivity. You usually can get you can usually get settlement free peering where you don't have to pay for it when the traffic is balanced in both directions. And I'll tell you an interesting story. This is kind of lore. It's not 100% factual. Just I heard this from somebody, heard this from somebody, heard this from somebody. But if you remember Shoutcast.com from AOL and Winamp, it was an early radio aggravator. Well, Shoutcast was uh, giving away bandwidth to a lot of the bigger radio stations for free. Um, And the reason they were doing that is because AOL's ISP business had all this incoming traffic, and they needed to balance out the traffic so they could have uh, settlement-free peering arrangements with a lot of the backbone providers. And the way they did that was they started putting media servers in the places where they had all these access servers at to balance out their traffic. And um, and that was their sort of workaround for doing that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Akamai is, is, my understanding, is paying to be in places like, you know, Comcast or whatever and paying Comcast for the right to serve up content to their customers. So, you know, and, and that's effectively what Level 3 was doing it, but they said that, well, we don't want to pay for it. We just, you know, want to hand off this connection to you and have you carry the traffic. So, Okay, so as far as you guys know, nothing in the music industry that's happened like that no okay and then the the last question i had was do any of you guys are you guys all consumer facing or do any of you guys have upstream slas that you have to adhere to 
Um, and can you talk about that if that's the case? I mean, we're, we're all consumer-facing, but we do have partnerships where we syndicate our content, for example, Yahoo or AOL. So I believe in those agreements there is some kind of SLA. What they are, I don't know, but it's, it's something we have to kind of live with once in a while. It doesn't come up every day, but it comes up three times a year kind of thing. In our case, we do some private label stuff for some other customers, and we have SLAs with them. Um, but usually those SLAs are like 99.9% uptime, so it's easy to do. <laughs> Five nines? <laughs> I think we should give somebody else a chance. Uh, what, what about, what a, <laughs> what about uh, Pandora's deal with uh, the, the background music provider? I'm term, um, DMX. DMX, yeah. That's business. Uh, is that is 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 a uh, DMX for, customer a who's doing license. Pandora for DMX? Are they serving off your normal servers? Yep. Okay. But they have the agreements to. So that's just purely a business deal. It doesn't yep. have any any uh, infrastructure. Or DMX is a, has a device that goes into businesses. You pay DMX. Yeah. They pay us a portion of that, but it's uh, they ha- DMX has the commercial license to serve. DMX, uh, since I didn't introduce them properly, they're a background music provider for commercial establishments because music in commercial establishments is treated different than music in your own home. There's a lot of people, a lot of commercial establishments who just use the consumer Pandora service and they think they can get away with it. We don't know that. We don't know that to be true. (laughs) No, it's not your fault. You're not the one. It's not your fault. It's their fault. We're trying to address that. Yeah. Uh, We got a couple minutes. Any last questions? Oh, I'm looking at you, Stephen. Oh, you're looking for the microphone. Uh, Just one last comment about SLAs, which came from bitter experience. An SLA is a piece of paper. It's an agreement about billing. When the shit goes down, what happens has nothing to do with the SLA. It only affects what you pay for it later on. You'll get a credit or some adjustment to your bill if they don't meet the terms of the SLA. If you make sure to ask for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it just it doesn't change what you're up against in actually repairing the outage. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Anyone else? Give it back to what was it, Vic? <laughs> oh, you're all done now. Four. I'm not allowed to let you leave this room for another three minutes, though, because the free beer doesn't start for three minutes. Um, I have a question for you guys. What should this panel, you know, the, the, the awesome dudes that are on this panel, do to make music better? Right? Just what, what, what are we missing? I mean, doesn't From a purely music... technical standpoint? Okay, sorry. No, no, I'm, no, you're not asking that. You're just saying in general, right? Yeah. Okay. How do we make this stuff not suck? There's the Funk Master Flex panel earlier, and he's my favorite radio DJ. He's essentially writing himself out of the radio DJ business um, by creating apps and websites that serve individual songs. But he himself as a personality is gone, and that's what I miss from any music creation service like Pandora or Vivo. Or, you know, I'm a big fan of WFMU. I used to have a show there. So it's just a matter of, you know, people. I, I miss people that aren't ads. Pandora could yeah. do that. The way you used to connect with an album or a vinyl. I, I think it's safe to say there's a lot of uh, people notes. in this space looking at making it real personal again by using, you know, even doing things like using ad insertion technology to be content insertion technology. You want your local news, your local weather. You want someone talking about the song you just heard, et cetera. You know, it's not a technological limitation. It's like, do people want that? You know, and historically, like, Five to ten years ago in the internet radio world, most people were listening to internet radio at work, and they just wanted background music. Uh, now that people are listening to mobile devices and in cars, they want personalities. They want the radio to keep them company. So the audience has changed drastically you know, in the last, I'd say, three to five years. And I think we're going to see it changing more. And like you said, I think you'll see a resurgence of personality. XM's doing pretty well. Well, XM, when it started, was programmed by Lee Abrams, who is the most famous program director and consultant in the radio industry. And his strategy was entirely to hire the very best on-air producers and and talent that he could get and aggregate them across his platform, which he did quite successfully for a number of years until... One could argue the biggest problem, what required a serious XM merger, was they had so much technical infrastructure that was duplicated, and they... uh, 
you know, and they had a lot of debt they had to deal with. But I think the popularity of the services have the been biggest problem was that Mel Carmazin was running the company. Right. Yeah, and then a guy who's historically known for his cheapness takes over. Yeah, that's true. Well, he didn't care about talent. Yeah. You know, because talent's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the in um, the on-demand video space, we I think we found that. People didn't want the noise of personality, so we tried to just give them the utility of it and let them get there. Then we built in continuous play, and that basically said when we played you one video, uh, the second, third, fourth, and fifth video would be all based on that first video using a recommendations engine. And then we, this, earlier this year, we launched this thing called Vivo TV, which is a 24-7 linear stream. And that's, that's where we're finding people need more personality to give it a pulse. Yeah. So, so now we're faced with, we've got this engineering feat where we've got these live encoders that we program playlists into, and they're at level three, and they, and they create these streams for us. And that's all great, but now we've got to figure out how to provide more channels and how to provide personality injected into that. And Do you do it in real time? Do you record it and then get it in? So there's some engineering feats that have got to be done. It's not impossible, but I mean, I think in our vision, we, in our heart of hearts, we would love to, in our Vivo TV property, essentially bring in personality. And I could see, I, could, I would rather see human personality as opposed to digital personality. We are out of time. So thank you, everybody, for coming. This has been great. Give the panel a hand. And uh, we'll all be up here for a minute or two, and then we're going to head into the, the cocktail party, and we can answer any more questions or talk about things that were outside the scope of this panel. So thank you again for coming.